0: Well, our sermon this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. I invite you to turn there this morning. We're going to be on page 859 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you want to use a copy of the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 4 and verse 1 is a wonderful story of our Lord going out to face the devil on our behalf. And I'm excited to consider it with you this morning that God may exalt Christ in our eyes and in our heart that we might find our delight in Him and our delight in following Him. And so we are in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, He was hungry. It is said, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Our Father, we're thankful now that we can come and and hear from you through your word. We believe that you have brought us here together as your people, redeemed by our Savior. That you might show yourself to us, namely you might show your son to us through the written word which you have given to us that we might gaze our eyes upon Him, that our heart might be won by Him, that our mind might be occupied with His glory, majesty, and splendor. And so help us to see Christ clearly today and in seeing Christ, follow Him more faithfully. And do this great and mighty work for Your name's sake, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. It was in 1962 when Adolf Eichmann the major organizer of the Holocaust, was brought to Israel to be tried for his war crimes. The principal witness at this trial was the Auschwitz survivor, Yehiel Diner. When Diner entered the courtroom to, to um, be put on, you know, on the stand to testify against Eichmann, he came face to face with Adolf Eichmann for the first time since Auschwitz. It had been 20 years and when Dner saw Eichmann, he stopped in his tracks immediately and then began to sob uncontrollably until he eventually fainted while the judge pounded his gavel trying to call the court to order. So why, why was Dner so overcome? You might think it was the hatred perhaps in his heart for Eichmann or, or maybe fear. Or, or maybe just seeing him uh, brought back a flood of memories that he had tried long ago to forget. But it was actually none of these things. In fact, Deneur was later interviewed by Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes. And, and he explained that he at once, once he saw Eichmann, he immediately realized that Eichmann was not the godlike officer that had sent so many to their deaths. He was just an ordinary man. And that terrified Deneur. He said, "I was afraid about myself. I saw that I'm capable to do this. I am exactly like he." Diner discovered that there is, if you will, an Eichmann in all of us, and the terrifying truth about our own nature. It wasn't the horror of Eichmann that smote Diner. The horrible revelation of self who caused this man to faint. In fact, uh, Deneur was not the only man who reached this, uh, this revelation. Uh, the author Hannah Arendt was at the trial who wrote a, a very famous book, The Banality of Evil. And, and Arendt, independent of Deneur's own realization, realized that Eichmann wasn't a monster. He was a small-minded man, she said. Who, who very much wanted to live for himself and do well for himself and really didn't care about others. He was a coward. Even though he did enormous evil, she will conclude he is very much like us. You see, there's an icon in all of us. Because all of us are in Adam. All of us have a willingness to live for ourselves and neglect the God who has made us. A willingness to go our own way. Which brings up the question, then what is our hope? Well, our hope is a second Adam. a, a One who will come and start a new creation, a new human race who will not go his own way. Who will stay true to God. In our study of the Gospel of Luke, we have seen how the angel has come and and announced that Jesus was to be born. And then when He was born, the, the angels proclaimed His birth. And we saw that He was born in Bethlehem and dedicated in Jerusalem and baptized in the Jordan. And now His work begins as He finally seeks out to find and to save the lost. The first thing evidently on Jesus' agenda is to take the fight right to the devil. And so out of the water, as we saw last time, inaugurated by God, commissioned, sent out by God, and and as if Jesus is still wet, he goes off to battle against the devil. Off to work, leaving the Jordan where heaven opened for him, walking out to the wilderness to the very gates of hell. Leaving the Jordan where the Father declared, you are my son, I love you. I am so pleased with you. And out into the wilderness where he will listen to the devil's sneering suggestions. Are you really the Son of God? In the Jordan, a moment of glory for Jesus. In the wilderness, weeks of suffering. And you think perhaps after the anointing of Jesus, after this great approval, after this this theophany, this divine revelation as God speaks from heaven, that God would immediately open doors of ministry and pour down blessings upon him. But we see the exact opposite. He goes to battle. He he has a time of testing, a time of temptation. I think the same is often true for us. One has once said, "From great privilege to great trial, there will be often just a step." It seems true for Jesus as he heads out to the wilderness. You note in verse one, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. The word wilderness here is the word Jeshimon, And it really means uh, literally, a literal translation would be the devastation. So this is a terrible place. This is not where you go on vacation. This is an inhospitable place. It, it is a desolate place. It is a harsh climate, difficult terrain, uninhabitable. And Jesus will live there for 40 days without food with the devil. Um, and, and I understand, and you, you know by now, we're going to talk about the devil this morning. I do realize that I live in the uh, 21st century America, and I realize that the idea that there is a personal devil... A supernatural being called the devil, so silly to many of our contemporaries. In fact, it was just a couple of weeks ago that I was listening to NPR, the Fresh Air program, and a Roman Catholic monk was being interviewed. And, uh, the, the interviewee, and, uh, Terry Gross and, and this monk, uh, thought it incredibly amusing, uh, that people still believe in a personal devil. And they just went on and on and had a, a great, uh, good chuckle over that reality. And I think that really kind of captures the, the world in which we live in. There are, there are many People, the modern secular people, of course, would think it's absolutely absurd that someone beyond an elementary education would stand before a group of a couple hundred people and tell them that there is a real supernatural being called the devil. And yet, that's exactly what I intend to do today. In fact, I think it's dangerous not to believe in the devil. I think he'd rather you not believe in him. In fact, you know who believes in the devil? Jesus. And so I'm just going to, once again, that's kind of my rule in life. I'm going with Jesus on this one Um, and and not Terry Gross and whoever else wants to laugh at me. I'm just going to side with Jesus as we see Jesus clearly uh, believes in the devil. In fact, he's interacting with him. As you note, he is tempted by him. For forty days, so don't think perhaps that the Jesus waits to the end of forty days to come to excuse me the devil waits to the end of forty days to tempt Jesus. Look very carefully there in verse two for forty days being tempted by the devil, and so there is clearly a temptation that comes at the end of Jesus' forty days, which we'll consider in a moment, but the devil's out there with him all forty days and, and spending time with Jesus and lobbying his temptations against him. in fact, reading on in verse two, we read. And he ate nothing during those days and when they were ended he was hungry and so Jesus of course uh, comes to the end of this temptation and he's uh, incredibly vulnerable he's he's exhausted uh, he, uh, I don't I don't know if uh your practice on fasting but I've never done anywhere closely approached uh, a 40-day fast what it would be like to go 40 days without food I'm, I'm, Medical doctors tell us we can't go much farther beyond that without before we die. And it's at this time that the devil comes again. He hits him when Jesus is at his weakest, which is often how he works with us. He tempts us when we are down. And, And he's there, I think, because he understands Jesus is a threat to him. Perhaps the devil was even there at the baptism of Jesus and heard the marvelous words from the Father. It seems like he is. You'll note this as how he tempts Jesus. He seems to be very well aware of what God said from heaven. And he seems to think his kingdom is now threatened, that Jesus has come to set the captives free, and Satan's not going to let that happen without a fight. And After all, he overcame the first Adam in the garden. He should have no problem with this newcomer in the wilderness. And so He goes out to tempt Him. There are three specific temptations, as you know, but I would suggest to you there's kind of one overall temptation. And, and, and it's this. Will Jesus go His own way? Will Jesus kind of abandon the will of the Father and find an easier way? And I think it's this exact same thing we see in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Will you go your way? Will you go the Creator's way? And so Jesus... Is being tempted. Do you believe God? And not just do you believe God, uh, not not just do you believe in God, but do you believe God? Do you believe what he has said? Should we trust him? Are you loyal to him? Do you have an allegiance to him? And by the way, this is not simply a temptation of Jesus, though it is that clearly, it is a test of Jesus. It's a it's a test that God is arranging. In fact, did you see in verse one that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness? Right, Mark will say the Holy Spirit cast him out into the wilderness. He said, this battle is arranged by God. The Holy Spirit is bringing him into this. The devil is going to come and tempt him. But the Father is clearly testing him. Will you follow me? Are you loyal to me? Do you have your allegiance with me? Now I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it for you. Right? He's going to follow the God. Right, He's going to obey. He's going to be loyal. He's going to reject the devil. He's going to show himself to be the righteous and faithful son dedicated to the Father. And therefore, before Jesus begins his ministry, we have now, as we read the Gospel of Luke, no doubt that he will faithfully obey and follow and complete the mission that the Father has given him. So let's consider this wonderful one, passages. Of course, we want to look at Jesus' temptations, and we'll begin by doing that. But I'd also like to consider with you the example that Jesus gives us, and then thirdly, the substitution that Jesus offers on our behalf. So Jesus' temptations, Jesus' example, and Jesus' substitution. You see, first of all, that Jesus is tempted. The first temptation is to doubt God's provision. The question that is presented to Jesus really is, does God care for you? As you know, in verse 3, the devil said to Him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And so this is a a pretty straightforward uh, temptation. Why why not make something to eat? seems harmless enough, I imagine. There's nothing inherently sinful in, in eating, clearly. Um, it's and of course jesus could do this he's He's he'll turn water into wine. He'll feed 5,000. This won't be a problem for Jesus. And of course, Jesus is hungry, as we saw in verse two. He's been 40 days without food. And so he's he's weak. He's hungry. Um, he's he's really, if you will, close to death at this time. And, and you and I have trouble relating to this, as I established. We don't like to go four hours without eating. Right. I mean, he's going 40 days without eating. And he's not doing it at home, by the way, but he's out in the wilderness. He's starving. He's dying. He's probably closer to death at this time than any other time in his life except the crucifixion. And, and the devil comes to him and says, well, if you're the son of God, well, why in the world are you starving in this wilderness? I mean, I, I, I was there. And I, I'm pretty sure I thought I heard him say, you're, you're my beloved son. But now I'm totally confused. Because this doesn't look like love to me. You're dying alone in the wilderness? How is this a father's loving will for his son? Are you sure we heard him right? You know he's suggesting. Because you're starving out here and he hasn't said anything to you for 40 days. If you're the son of God, let's just establish this, you know. Feed yourself. The devil, see, it doesn't come to Jesus, it doesn't try to scare Jesus. He's not hiding around the corner and going to shout at him when he comes by. He's not trying to get people to levitate off their bed or silly things like that. He's trying to get us to doubt that God is good, to doubt God's care. Why are you you suffering? This does not look like love. You need to take care of yourself. He's abandoned you. He is not good. This is the suggestion that he gave not only to Jesus but to Adam and Eve. (laughs) You're not going to die. He just knows that the day you eat of it, you'll become like Him. And He doesn't want you to become like Him. He likes His position. He's not being good to you. And this is the suggestion of the devil. This is the essence of the devil's kingdom. Feed yourself. Take care of your own needs. Doesn't God want you to be happy? Therefore, have the affair or get the divorce or hoard your money or guard your freedom. Jesus will hear this throughout His life, even to the end of His life, if you are the Son of God. Come down from that cross and save yourself. The reality is God wants him on the cross. God wants him in the wilderness. God wants him in this difficult and hard place. And Jesus will, even in the midst of his suffering, trust and obey God as he responds in verse 4. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 here. There's a time in which Israel is grumbling, not because they don't have enough food, they have plenty of food. But they just don't particularly like the food that they have. And and the answer is, well, you don't live by bread alone. In fact, what do you live by? You know the rest of the verse? But by the very words that come from the mouth of the Lord every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see what Jesus is saying? He said, look and say, Satan, I'm not going to turn this stone into bread because I don't live off bread. I live off the Word of God and I may be hungry now, but God's Word said to me, you are my son and I love you and I'm pleased with you And, and, and even in the midst of hardship, that is true. I believe it. I may be desperate for food, but I know God loves me. I know God's will. I may not understand why I'm in this hardship or this difficulty, but I will follow him he's led me here and I will wait till he releases me and Jesus trusts God and trusts the word of God we are made to follow the will of God we're not made to follow our own cravings we've gone astray each one of us have gone our own way we are made to define God's word and our delight in God's word I wonder if some of you here today are even feel like you are in the wilderness some of you feel like you're in the midst of hardship and difficulty. And you're wondering, why, why am I still single? Why, why don't I have a job? Or why is my job a dead-end job? Or why is it not fulfilling? Why is my health like this? And we feel like, we were wondering, why am I in the wilderness? And we may not have the answer to that question, but we can answer it this way. We can tell you that God wants you to trust Him in the midst of it. That His will is better for you than food. It's better for you than than ease and comfort. Christ clearly knows that. He won't doubt God's provision. But he also will not doubt. Uh, he's uh, secondly tempted to doubt God's plan, which of course he will not. The, the, the temptation is God's plan the best. Go no, verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. And so we go from the incredibly mundane stones and bread to the, to the marvelous. All the kingdoms of the world and, and, somehow he gives them this vision that shows him the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. Just not Judea or Rome, but all the powers, the unknown kingdoms, Egypt and Europe and perhaps future kingdoms, the Ottoman Empire and, and, and the USSR and the United States of America and there's this fantasy-like vision and the devil comes to him and says, you know, all these nations are ready to abandon their idols and hail you as king. They are, you see the, the glory of their military might and their royal treasuries and their cultural advancements and their technological achievements. All of that can be done in your honor, Jesus. All the gates of the kingdom will swing open and they will all bow their knee to you in allegiance. I can give it to you. I can give it all. Now, of course, please remember that the devil's a liar. Uh, he, he's a subtle liar. He makes truth with lies. And, and he certainly has power in this world, and we see his influence perhaps everywhere we look. But the world is not his, the kingdoms are not his. He, he, he rules by permission, not by possession. He's on a leash. And so he's lying to Jesus. But it is, of course, a very tempting lie, I think, because what he's promising Jesus, he's offering him a crown without the cross. I mean, you could win the world without a pinch of blood or an or, or ounce of pain. I mean, after all, haven't I mean, you come to establish your kingdom? I'll just give it to you. You don't have to work for it. You, you don't have to die for it. I, I could get you the kingdom without the cross. I, I, I ship direct. Right? Overnight delivery. I will get it to you right away. There's no betrayal. There's no poverty. There's no flogging, there's no arrest, there's no spitting, there's no crucifixion, there's no murder. I'll give it to you. In fact, do you know in Psalm 2, the father says to the son, ask of me and, and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. And here comes the devil and says, listen, I got a better deal for you. See, the devil's trying to be Jesus' benefactor, right? If you're the son of God, you know, why, why do you have to go through this hardship? Why are you living like you're poor? Why are you planning to suffer? Why, why don't you live like a prince? Why don't you claim your blessing? Right? You see, the devil is just a, the first prosperity preacher. Right? Just, just ask for it. And I'll, I'll give it to you. Right? It, it sounds a little bit too good to be true. Don't you think? It is. Because there's a cost. Right? You notice like a good salesman, he just shows them the wares before he even gets to the cost. He shows them all the kingdoms, and then he mentions, oh, by the way, it'll just cost you this, according to verse 7. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. It's all yours for the low, low price of just a little bit of false worship. Just a, just a split second of idolatry and all the kingdoms of yours. Just, just bow your knee to me, Jesus, and I'll lay it all at your feet. You bypass Calvary, we go straight to glory. Just give me the glory that is only due God's. To God. Which, of course, is Satan's eternal desire, right? Is to be worshiped. It's it's to to be elevated, to be be exalted, to be the Lord of the Son of God Himself. And, And at the core here, the temptation is will you go your way or will you go God's way? Is Jesus committed to the Father or is He committed to Himself? And I really think that's a question that lies before us all the time. I think we're always answering this question. Uh, who are we committed to? Ourselves or, or, or the Father or for God? I, I really think there's two kingdoms vying for our, our loyalty, our allegiance. And many people, I think, live in this world and they say, I live for me and other people are supposed to live for me and meet my needs. And that seems to be the essence of the devil's kingdom. And yet there's another kingdom, isn't there? That, that the kingdom of God that says, I live for God and therefore my life will be poured out for other people and that that represents the kingdom of christ satan says get your power and your influence and your resources and use it to meet your needs jesus says i have power resources and influence and i'm going to use my power to serve others and i think that's what's happening in all these temptations i I, even in the first temptation i I don't know if you notice but the fast is over did you see that look in look in verse two again For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So the fast is over. The 40 days, the 40 day fast has ended. And it's at this time that the devil comes and says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And Jesus refuses. You know what? Jesus always refuses that request. He never, not a single occasion, uses his miraculous power to benefit himself right he'll use his miraculous power but never for his own gain right you see jesus looking for food he's out there put, picking heads of uh, wheat and eating them he's never creating food for himself there, there was never a time when you know jesus is out in the field sleeping don't you think he had restless nights don't you think at times there's you know there's a rock in his back and he thinks maybe i'll just float an inch off the ground you know i, I could really use a good night's sleep right what's wrong with a good night's sleep but not a single time Jesus never, in in any time, will use his power for his own gain. He'll just use it to meet the needs of others. Satan, on the other hand, says you, you should use your power and your influence and your resources the way a normal person does, for yourself. Let it terminate upon you, but Jesus will only serve God. I think you're constantly choosing which kingdom to follow. I think you're making choices all the time. And I think when you go one way, you become more like its leader, and when you go the other way, you become more like... It's leader. Like, I think, for, for instance, you, you walk into a room. There's a couple of ways you could walk into a room. One way you could walk in and you think, okay, I, there's a bunch of people here. Are these m- my kind of people? Are these cool people? Right? Are these people that are going to bless me? Are these people that I want to be with, that I want to spend time with? Right? Or you could walk into a room and think, where can I serve? Who can I bless? Who needs an encouragement? Who needs to, to, be, to be told about Christ? There's two totally different ways to, we're always making this decision. How, how you drive, what you do at work, how you, what you watch on TV, and, 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 and even when you walk into this room on Sunday mornings, and, and you're constantly taking either steps closer to the devil or closer to Jesus. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down on your anger, comma, and do not let the devil have a foothold. Isn't that interesting? And he connects these two. Right? He says, don't hoard a grudge. Don't be thinking, oh, I can't believe they did this to me. Right? Because then life becomes about you. And what Paul's saying, once you begin to do that, you begin to give the, the spiritual opposition outside you an opportunity to work in you. You give them a foothold to take you places you'd rather not go. And you, you'll find yourself surprised that you can't let go of your anger. And all of a sudden it gets the best of you or things are not, well, you're, you're doing things that you normally would not do because the devil has a foothold. And he's dragging you in that direction. And listen, evil's not simple. The, the, there's a satanic kingdom and when we choose it, we actually become more like it. We can become a monster. And every time you take a step one way or another, you keep a grudge perhaps and you nurture self-pity, you're going to become more and more like Either the devil or God. And Jesus seems to be aware of this. For in verse 8 he says, And he answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him. In uh, him only shall you serve. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.3 When the people were tempted towards idolatry and God's word came, He says, God alone is worthy of your allegiance. In fact, as for the kingdoms, you know Jesus is going to have those kingdoms, isn't he? He's going to rule those kingdoms. And the kingdoms will be given to him not by the devil, but by his father. And his loyalty and allegiance to God and his father's will will one day be rewarded. And he will receive it. And yes, every knee will bow to him, including the devil. And they will all bow to King Jesus, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Now, the third temptation is that Jesus is tempted to doubt God's protection. This is interesting as the devil once again moves Jesus to another location, this time to the pinnacle of the temple as we read in verse nine. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And it's almost like the devil says, Oh, I could tell you like the Bible, Jesus. I like the Bible too. In fact, let's have a little Bible study up here as we stand upon the roof of the temple and it's most likely uh, many people at least have speculated that that he is at the place of the temple called the royal portico which is a 450 foot drop to the kidron valley the ancient historian josephus would say if anyone looked down his eyes would grow dizzy not being able to reach so vast a depth and it's almost as if there they stood Uh, jesus and the devil on the southeast corner of the temple with the wind in their robes as they talk about Scripture. The devil clearly knows his Bible as he quotes Psalm 91, which a famous psalm celebrating God's faithfulness, God's protection to his faithful. And the devil seems to think, well, you, you quote, you've quoted the Bible quite a bit. You know, let's see if you actually believe it. Right? let see if you trust it. And let's see if he's trustworthy. So why don't you show me? If you're the Son of God, and this is what the Word says, why don't you just throw yourself down? Let's just let God prove it. Of course, this is a misapplication of Psalm 91. The, the, the psalm says if you serve God faithfully that you, He will help you in times of need. It does not say uh, stand in front of a train or drink poison or handle snakes and God will come to your rescue. We're not to put God to a test, as Jesus tells us in verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, quoting Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6 and verse 16. It was a reminder to the nation of Israel as it enters the land not to test the Lord. When Jesus says, I don't need to test God. I don't need to manufacture some sign. I trust Him. You see, it's a person that doesn't trust God that puts tests before God to see if God's faithful. To trust God is not a sign of faith. It's a sign of a lack of faith. And if you're unsure, you devise experiments for God to pass. And of course, we don't stand on buildings, but we do say, th- say things like, well, if you love me, then right, this will happen. Right? And there's always a then. My kids will turn out okay, I'll get the job, I'll get the girl, or whatever it is, right? If you love me, this will happen. That's not faith. That's a lack of faith, and it's actually sin. The Bible, the Bible tells us that Jesus heard of the Father's love and that was enough for him. He doesn't need to manufacture something for him. In fact, one day he will actually put his hands, his life in the hands of the Father. He will do it while he hangs upon Calvary as cross and cry out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But He won't do it until that day. And He will do it on that day in obedience to the will of God the Father. Not because He's creating some artificial stunt for God to prove Himself. And God will prove Himself. It's three days later, that Son of God, just as God has promised, will rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and reigns as Lord, the resurrected Lord. And so God, God, Jesus passes God this test, the devil's temptation. He does not doubt God's protection. And then finally Jesus says, devil, why don't you just get out of my face? As we see in verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Game over. Battle won. The devil leaves, of course, but he will come back. In fact, in our study of Luke, we'll see it all the time. He's going to hit him twice in the Gospel of Luke, even, and chapter four, even. It's not going to be long before the, before the devil comes back. But the point is that Jesus is faithful. He came to obey God. He's not going to go his own way. He took the devil's best when he was at his weakest, and he triumphed. And in doing so, he gives us this incredible example. In fact, we, we really see the devil's tactics here, I think. I think the devil comes at us the same way. I don't, I think he has a limited playbook. I think he's constantly coming to us and and he's doing what he did with Jesus. He's trying to make good things in our life into the ultimate things in our life. You notice he never came to Jesus and says, hey, why don't you commit murder or steal? He didn't come to Jesus with a dirty magazine and say, hey, look at this. These are these little games that sub devils play. He came to Jesus Skipping over all those things and, and tries to get Jesus to take good things and prioritize them over God. After all, what's wrong with bread? Or the kingdoms of the world? I mean, uh, you and I are not fit to rule, but clearly Christ is. He's come for the kingdoms. He's come for the nations. And, 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 and what about, you know, I want, I want to know how much you trust God and how much God cares for you. Right? In the face of the... It, there's really nothing inherently evil about the request in which the devil ha- is asking uh, he's he's just wanting Jesus to take something that's good, that we would all say is there's good in all these things, and just place them over God. And that's how he tempts you and I. He, he takes bread and jobs and marriages and children and plans, and he wants them to make the ultimate thing, something you must have. So you want to know if the devil's working in your life. It's not whether do I pray or do I uh, pay my taxes or give my tithe or love my wife. Well, we need to look deeper than that. Is there something in my life that I must have in order to be happy? Is there something in my life that, is, that I must have in order to, to maintain my identity as to who I think I am or I must have in order to have purpose? And without those things, my life becomes meaningless. Well, that's called an idol. And, and that will lead you astray rather quickly. And I think we've seen this in people's lives. Do you not know people who, said, who, who have asked God for something and God did not give them what they wanted and therefore they just walked away from God? That's what that idol will do. It will take you away. Or other people say, I had this and I had God, but God I, I, I took this away or God wouldn't give me this or I couldn't have both and so I just got rid of God. I just left Him. People will say the career has to go well. The kids have to turn out okay. That's an idol. And it will cause us to commit sin. It will paralyze us with terror and fear. It will create anger in us when people get in our way. And this is how the devil comes against Jesus. And Jesus teaches us how to fight against that. You notice how He fought against that. It is written. It is written. It is said. He, he appeals to Scripture showing us how does we fight against the devil's lies. And He comes and, and, and He quotes from Deuteronomy. I wonder if all human history was dependent upon your ability to quote Deuteronomy. You know, after 40 days of fasting. You would probably say, you know, what's a Deuteronomy? Right? And, and here, it's just, it's just flowing out of them. Boom, boom, boom. The Word of God is just coming out of Jesus. He knew it. He was saturated with it. You know, uh, I think most people, uh, when we're, we're in settings like this or, or around other people, we know how we're supposed to behave. We know the expectations that are on us, and we try pretty hard to kind of meet those expe- expectations. Um, but when people are stressed or or angry or in pain they're not thinking at those times generally okay how am i supposed to behave here no what comes out is what they really are who they truly are they're not giving any thought to what other people think it's just it's just flowing out of them and here's jesus by the way for 40 days just in a great deal of distress probably greater stress than you and i will ever imagine and what's coming out of him is god's word it's just flowing out of him in fact, you notice in his greatest pain, when he hangs upon the cross, what comes out of Jesus? What's the word of God? <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm Thirty-one. He's saturated with Scripture. He's 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 shaped by Scripture. It's his meat and his drink, right? And he believes it. It's not like a magic trick. He's not like waving the Bible and the devil's hissing at him, or, you know, running away or or surrounding himself with the Bible and he's got like the the free zone, right? No, it's not. It's not the the word. It's the fact that Jesus actually believes the word. He actually trusts the word. He actually places his hope in the word, and therefore his heart is so inflamed with God. He's so saturated with God that there's no room left for the devil to put his lies in there. The devil can't hurt you unless he gets you to believe a lie. But if your heart is so inflamed with God's word, with God's truth, that he cannot do anything to you. And so friends, I would encourage you, if you're struggling with a particular sin, go to God's Word. Believe God's Word. Memorize God's Word that apply to those issues in your life. That you might fight against the devil when he comes and allures you back into that enslavement. Or just study the Word generally. Know it and live by it. This is why we spend every Sunday, you know, uh, this time in God's Word that we might know our God through it. Do you know that Jesus in, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, He says, my prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. Okay, so Christ, right before he goes to the cross, is praying for you, says, God, protect them from the devil. And then right after, right after that prayer, Father, sanctify them in truth. You see the connection? You want to be protected from the devil? You've got to be transformed by truth. And what's truth? The very next words Your word is truth. He prays. And so we need to spend time in God's Word. If the only time you pick up the Bible is on Sunday morning, um, I'm certainly thankful for that. I think that does you good. I think that will reap fruit in your life, but I also think it puts you in a very dangerous place, brothers and sisters. It needs to be our meat. It needs to be our drink. We need to spend time with God in His Word. If Jesus Christ did not think He could handle life without knowing the Scripture, I don't know how you and I are going to be able to. I appreciate what the theologian of old, J.C. Ryle, said. Let us learn from this single fact if we learn nothing else from, the, from this wondrous history. The high authority of the Bible and the immense value of a knowledge of its contents. Let us read it, search into it, pray over it, diligently, perseveringly, unwearingly. Let us strive to be so thoroughly acquainted with his pages that its text may abide in our memories and stand ready at our right hand in the day of need. Clearly Jesus did this. He is our example for us. And of course, we could end now, couldn't we? And we could think, okay, well, I now have have the truth and I I have Jesus as example. I know what I'm supposed to do. And we get up and we leave this room thinking, okay, I'm I'm going to be like Jesus in this. But sometime it's going to hit you. You may be in the parking lot or maybe home this afternoon as you're thinking about this. There's a problem. I can't be like Jesus. I'm I'm going to fail. I'll, I'll never be where Jesus is. And so the hope for you is not the fact that Jesus is your example. The hope for you is that Jesus is your substitute. In fact, do you remember what preceded this account? You see this in our study of the Gospel of Luke? You know what happened right before the temptation of Jesus? Luke gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And you know how the genealogy ends in verse 38? The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You see what Luke is doing is he's contrasting Adam with Jesus. Jesus is like Adam. He is coming to create a new humanity. And so Luke takes us all the way back to Adam, ends with Adam, and then immediately puts Jesus in the wilderness to face the same old adversary that Adam did. And the Bible tells us that, as as, uh, our brother Tom read for us this morning from Romans 5, that we're all born into Adam's family. Romans 5 verse 12 says, As sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, death through sin, and so death spread to all man. And so Adam was created perfectly in the Father's image and chose to rebel. Chose to go his own way. And by doing so, he plunged all of humanity into sin. And as our father, we bear his disposition. We're just like our dad, Adam. And we have a disposition to go our own way and to do our own thing and to walk away from God. The consequences are found in Romans 5 and verse 19. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's you and I. We're made sinners. Our father is Adam. We are like Adam. And so the question is, how, as Adam's sons, can we be rescued? Well, we, we need a new dad. We need a new beginning. We need a new son of God. And so Christ has come to be that. He's come to be our, as the, in theological language, our federal head. Are start a new family because unlike us, he has this unbroken relationship with the Father. In other words, he's what Adam once was, but chose not to be. The Bible fact says in Romans five nineteen, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's Adam. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many were made righteous. I like to illustrate it. I think about it like this: Adam, uh, in sinning against God, fell into a pit. And their Adam is in a pit, and he can't get out of the pit, and Eve's down there in the pit. And so they're both in the pit, and and, uh, there they are together, wondering what they're going to do. And they they decide, well, we could have kids, you know, we could do that. And so they have kids, and their kids are born in the pit. And then their kids have kids, and they're born in the pit, and and they keep having kids. And and we're all all in, it's a very big pit, okay? We're all in the pit, and, and we're all stuck down there. And there's no hope until one comes. And... He's not born in the pit, but he climbs down into the pit. It's Jesus. See, he's like us. I think that's the point of the genealogy. He's a human just like us. But the difference is he's God. And he's, he's there not because he disobeyed God. He's there because he to the opposite. He's obeying God. He never lets go of the rope. And, and he's so firmly connected with the Father. So how do we get out? Well, we bail on our old dad and we go... And join the new humanity with Jesus. Romans 5.17 says, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has come to create a new humanity. He's come to do what Adam failed to do. He's come to obey the Father even in the midst of temptation. This is why Luke puts this genealogy right here, right in the middle at the end of chapter 3, not at the beginning of his gospel like Matthew does. He puts it right before the temptation because Jesus is going out to regain paradise for us. He's going to battle for us. In Adam, paradise was lost. We were all then banished out of paradise into the wilderness. And where does Jesus go? He goes to the wilderness where we are to fight to get us back into paradise. To regain what Adam had lost. And so you begin to see when you realize this, that what's at stake in this temptation Right? Well, why? Why is Jesus out there? And what is? What happens if he fails? Or what happens if he succeeds? Because if he fails, he just joins us, and there's no hope for us. There's no new people. There's no new creation. There's no atoning sacrifice. There's no bodily resurrection. There's no hope of eternal life. There's there's no uh, majestic mountains and crystal lakes and fellowship with God. There's no hope at all if he fails here. The whole plan of salvation is at stake in Luke chapter four. If he loses, paradise is lost. And you and I live in the wilderness until we die and then face condemnation. But if he wins and persists to the end, paradise can be regained for us. In fact, you see the contrast in this passage with with the passage of Adam where Adam who lived in this beautiful paradise and Jesus is in a desert wasteland. And and Adam enjoyed the the companionship of his spirit-filled wife and an occasional visit from God, Jesus is all alone. Adam had all he wanted. I mean, free to eat from anything that he could set his eyes on except one tree. Jesus fasted for 40 days. He's starving to death. Adam had no need to doubt God's provision, his love, his care, his plan. There was evidence all around him. Jesus was deprived of everything, every reason to doubt. When the devil came to Adam, it was paradise all around. His wife his side, His belly was full. But when the devil came to Satan, he was, uh, the, when the devil came to Jesus, he was weary and isolated and dying as he stood before this resplendent figure full of power, and promise and they go to battle it is the greatest battle that that had been fought to that day and by far the most important in fact there's one more difference isn't there between adam and jesus jesus wins Jesus does not believe the lie. Jesus loves his father. He is totally obedient. He is the man, that man as man was meant to be fully righteous, fully in love with God. And he obeys. And off the devil goes. It's not the last battle. But the writing's on the wall now, isn't it? Right? We, we know that this is the first time ever that the son of Adam, if you will, defeated the devil. A new start is coming. Jesus is proving his worth. He is proving his worth to be a sacrifice for us. Proving his worth to go to the cross for us. And there on the cross, he will die for sinful people like you and I. People who will not follow the Father. People who will give in to the temptation of the devil. People who will turn our back upon a loving creator who just wants to shower us with mercy and love. We will fall away from Him. But Jesus will not. And He will go to a cross there and He will take all of your rebellion and my rebellion upon His shoulders bearing the wrath of a holy God and three days later rise from the dead declaring, if you trust Me, if you follow Me, I will give you eternal life. It is not work. You will not work your way out of that pit. Do you know this God, this Savior, who has come to rescue us? You see what's happening here? You know why He's being tempted? Is that God's thinking, oh, I really want to give you all a good example of what it looks like to overcome temptation. And so what we'll do is I'll have you, Jesus, go out and you'll fast for 40 days and you'll be miserable and you'll almost die and then the devil will come. And then you'll overcome the devil and then we'll all have good principles Based upon which to live. No. Of course we get principles here. But it's not why Jesus is out there. He's out there to be our savior for us. He's out there to take our place. He's out there to be our substitute. Precisely because we will not follow his example. And so he's tempted in our place. So that we can be accepted. So that we can place our sins upon him. And he can give us the awards in which he has won. I tell you, friends, if you only see Jesus as your example, it will lead to faithlessness. It, will, it won't lead to faith, faithfulness. It won't lead to obedience. It will lead to despair. If Jesus is just your example, that will lead to, to discouragement. But if you see Jesus as your substitute, if you, your heart's going to be one to him. And you're going to increasingly want to become like him. He has come to show us the way. But he has come to save us. Do you know him? Have you been saved by Him? Have you been won by Him? Perhaps God will call you even today. Perhaps there are some here this morning that do not know Christ as their Savior, have not bowed their knee to Jesus as their Lord, have not trusted in the crucified and resurrected King. He invites you today. He summons you as a King to come and bow your knee and swear your allegiance to Him. We would love for you to receive Him today. In a moment we're going to sing, I'm going to be down front, certainly love an opportunity to pray with you if God is working in your heart. Perhaps if you came with someone here this morning, that they would love to talk with you and pray with you if God is working in you and, and moving you. We have a church full of elders who would love to intercede on your behalf. Will you respond to what God is doing in your heart today as we see Jesus as our great Savior? Father, we love you and we thank you for Christ our King. We thank you that he is victorious. We thank you that he has done what we could not do, that he has stood his ground. He has declared his allegiance. He has promised and shown his loyalty to you that we who are disloyal, that we who are fainthearted might have eternal life, might be adopted into your family for Christ has done our work for us. Work in our hearts today. Help us to love Jesus today. Help us to leave this room, not just committed to your word, not just committed to overcoming temptation, but help us primarily leave here in love with Jesus. All praise to Jesus, Father, for he has come for us. Help our hearts to be won by him. Help those here this morning that do not know him as their Lord and Savior. Will you not win their hearts as well? Will you not send your spirit into them and cause them to be born again that they too might know the joy and delight of having Jesus as their King and God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.